This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, the news media in the age of Trump. John Nichols says these are the worst of times for journalism. Also later in the hour, we'll speak with Alan Minsky. He's just returned from the L.A. events today featuring our new hero, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. That's the DSA activist who won that stunning upset victory in the Democratic primary there. She's about to become the youngest woman ever elected to the House of Representatives. First up, Trump's 1968 and ours. Trump Watch starts right now. Fifty years ago this month, young anti-war activists gathered in Chicago to protest outside the Democratic National Convention. The result was a gigantic battle with the police broadcast on national TV, and the whole world was watching. It was one of the climactic moments of a year like no other. Donald Trump, however, was not protesting against the war in the streets of Chicago. He had just graduated from business school and joined his father's real estate company in New York City. For the story of Trump's 1968 and ours, we turn to Todd Gitlin. He was a key figure in the New Left, president of Students for a Democratic Society in 1964 and 65, and he helped organize the first national demonstrations against the war in April 1965. He's also a key historian of the era, author of the book, The Sixties, Years of Hope, Days of Rage, among many other books. And he's a professor of journalism and sociology at Columbia University. Todd Gitlin, welcome back. Nice to be with you, John. Well, remind us briefly about the events of 1968 before those demonstrations in August. Maybe we should start with, uh, I don't know, the Vietnam War. Well, <laughs> 1968 felt in some ways like the present in that once, just when you thought you'd heard the most egregious the most uh, appalling mm. fact, uh, the most surprising development, something else came on and whacked you on the head all over again. Um, and uh, so the war was on. Uh, several thousand, several tens of thousands of Americans had already been killed. The Tet Offensive began uh, the process by which Americans realized that this war was not being won, that the war was going to be, uh, by default, uh, a blow against America's arrogance and the false sense of innocence. And that, let me just say, was at the Uh, end of January and the beginning of February, so that was the start of the year. That's right. And uh, so in the meantime, you have uh, Eugene McCarthy having declared that he's running uh, for the nomination for president against President Johnson. He does well against Johnson in the New Hampshire primary, whereupon Bobby Kennedy, after stalling, uh, decides to enter the race. So now we have two anti-war candidates against Johnson. Johnson goes before the, the nation at the end of March and declares that he is not going to seek another term. Uh, four days later, Martin Luther King is assassinated, and um, there are uh, uproars uh, in American cities. Um, hundreds of American cities are burnt to the ground, or nearly so. Some of them never quite rebuilt. Um, that's just some of what's going on. And, of course, campus uh, 
confrontations are in train. Uh, Colombia's uprising uh, April 1968, uh, and uh, police busts and uh, brutality uh, everywhere you can see. So that's the, the setting. It's a it's a setting that that lends itself to astonishment, fear. Uh, uh, apocalyptic uh, anticipations or um, fears of worse. Uh, it's uh, it's not a time for uh, unruffled uh, sensibilities. So Johnson's withdrawal from his own re-election campaign was something that had never happened before. It was clearly a response to the anti-war movement and the anti-war candidacy of these of these two uh, uh, senators. That was a tremendous victory uh, for the anti-war movement in the streets and for the small but dedicated uh, activists in the de- fighting in the Democratic Party to get rid of their own president. That succeeded. Uh, but then, of course, Robert Kennedy was assassinated in the California, on, the, on the evening of the California primary in June. That left the opposition within the Democratic Party pretty much without a candidate. Uh, and that, and meanwhile, uh, Johnson's uh, vice president, Hubert Humphrey, from my home state of Minnesota, uh, picked up the banner of the Democratic Party establishment. And this brings us to Chicago, August 1968, the Democratic National Convention. What was the plan? Well, was there a plan? <laughs> uh, there, were, there, there was no, there was no central leadership. But insofar as there was any, the plan of most was to precipitate. Well, the first plan was to try to get to see if you could have a straightforward, sensible, peaceful demonstration. Yes. But the Daily Administration in Chicago made it evident that they weren't going to permit that. They were going to permit people to sleep in the park. Uh, they had imported um, uh, army and national guard troops on top of thousands of Chicago police. So they, they were, they were, they were itching for a fight. And some of the organizers of the demonstrations were also, in their own way, itching for a fight, uh, in order to demonstrate that the country could not simply be permitted to trundle along uh, in a business-as-usual way as long as this abomination was taking place in Vietnam. So um, the plan, I suppose, was to demonstrate, to be uh, out there, uh, and to more or less, to see how far you could go uh, taking the streets without uh, incurring a police reaction, which would be even more uh, bloody than the reactions that they'd seen so far. I mean, so I, I think it would be sort of somewhat misleading to say there was a plan. What there was was a mood. Yeah. Uh, and the mood, the mood was, let's fight. Yeah. And uh, the hopes of the organizers that 100,000 or something like that, young people would come to Chicago were were terribly disappointed. In the end, it was only, what, 20,000 or 30,000. But bec- I, don't, I didn't even know if there were that many. Um, I mean, I, nobody really knows, but there yeah. was certainly nothing like 100,000. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of people stayed away, uh, apprehensive, yes. I think, realistically, that yes. what 
might be building up was a massacre. And and uh, the fact that the the mayor uh, ordered the Chicago police and the and the National Guard joined in in this huge battle in the streets completely transformed uh, the meaning of the convention and, uh, in a lot of ways, the anti-war movement, too. Um, it left people like you and me, let's identify ourselves here, a couple of old white men who remember that year very vividly, uh, feeling very despairing, very uh, uh, hopeless about how the war would ever end. Am I right about that? You are right about that. Um, the there was no clear, there was no plausible trajectory toward ending ending the war at this point, and the the uh, the, the killing of Bobby Kennedy sort of put the end to any lingering hope that there might be a, 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 a seamless way out or a relatively decent way out. So uh, there was a sense of desperation. Uh, and, 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 and a weird sort of, um, there was, you know, America was living one, one kind of reality. You know, there was an election, there was Nixon, there was Humphrey, there was George Wallace, uh, competing for president. And then, you know, the movement was itself on a different plane of apocalyptic expectation without a plausible direction for a way out. So um, this meant there, there was a, something of a surreal um, uh, sort of structure of feeling, a, sort of a surreal mood uh, in the movement. There was no way forward. And, and you know, when, when, you're, when you've been working against the war for years now and your numbers are growing, but you are completely unrepresented in the political system, completely unrepresented in the political system, then you're staring at a wall. You're staring at uh, a, a, an enfeeblement. You're staring at, at hopelessness. And, and that was, I think, very much the mood, although the, the hopelessness was sometimes disguised as its opposite, namely uh, a kind of revolutionary elan, a kind of uh, joyous expectation that the the system was going to break down any any minute, but I, I I would say that was a delusion, and and what it masked was just the harshest kind of of desperation. Meantime, America's going along. Uh, Donald Trump, who you I think rightly want to look at in this context, represents that part of the generation, which is actually. Um, Trumping along quite merrily, figuring out how to get away with sort of pretending that life is normal. I mean, Donald Trump represents that segment of the '50s that persists into the '60s. It it is quite numerous. It doesn't uh, look forward to social transformation. It looks looks forward to business as usual. Its hero, as I've written, is 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 uh, is not Martin Luther King. It's not Che Guevara. It's Hugh Hefner. Oh, and, you know, it's sort of American. Uh, it's it's uh, as Trump once told um, uh, Howard Stern. You know, his his Vietnam was avoiding sexually transmitted diseases. <laughs> oh, uh, so, and you know, he was yeah. not alone in that. There, yeah. were, there were a lot of Americans who thought, you know, the. America's doings in the world were not any of their business. Their business was simply to do the American thing, which is to make money. 
And just to be specific about this, Donald Trump, while people like us were getting ready to go to uh, Chicago to confront the war and the war makers, Donald Trump was graduating from business school, the Wharton School. Uh, uh, he uh, had a student deferment. His student deferment uh, turned into a, a 1A uh, available for service. He got himself declared um, for F, unfit for service because of a medical condition, namely his famous bone spurs. And then he went went to work for his father and became president of the Trump Management Corporation, in, you know, which had 14,000 apartments in Brooklyn and Queens. And a couple of years later, he and his father were on the front page of the New York Times because they'd been charged by the Department of Justice for refusing to rent to black people. That was Donald Trump's 1960s business school, yes. medical deferment, uh, running the family real estate company and refusing to rent to black people. And you're absolutely right. The anti-war movement didn't represent everybody. It probably didn't even represent a majority of college students, even in 1968. So Donald Trump uh, probably never spent one millisecond thinking about the war in Vietnam. And yeah. insofar as he was aware that there was uh, an uprising, a tumult, uh, a contestation in America, it was there were some annoying people who were getting in the way of his family business. That is to say, getting in the way of their proceeding to uh, rent only to white people. So, uh, you know, this is not so. But this was not atypical. Yeah. While we we think back at on, uh, you know, social crisis uh, as if everybody's sort of seized by it in the same fashion. That's that's nonsense. Just as today, there are many people going on about their business as if we were not in a state of, of crazy emergency we're in. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk for a minute about the Democratic Party in 1968. Today, you know, we the Republican Party is not just the party of Wall Street, which it was in 1968. The Republican Party today is increasingly anti-democratic. It promotes voter suppression. It promotes uh, unlimited campaign spending by the super rich. But in 1968... Our main target was the Democratic Party. What was the Democratic Party in 1968? Well, the Democratic Party was then uh, at the end of its New Deal rope. That is, it had prevailed um, for uh, more than 30 years, for 36 years, uh, from through Franklin Roosevelt and through uh, Truman. And even during the Eisenhower years, when the Democrats, for the most part, controlled Congress, and Eisenhower was himself, you know, you know, sort of a right-wing Democrat. Um, but the coalition, rather unsavory coalition between Dixiecrats and liberals, was uh, on its last legs. It, it was destabilized by the emergence of the Black Revolt. It could not withstand that. So it was it was a doomed enterprise, and what we saw in 1968 was that the Democrats were couldn't square the circle anymore. They could not find a, a unifying figure, a unifying politician like Johnson in his own way, who could uh, sort of hold on to the disparate elements, uh, pull together the centrifugal forces, and, and 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 present a common front as as a ruling party. And actually, at that moment. Nixon, having sort of squared the circle of his own and combined uh, his support from Rockefeller Republicans 
with the support from um, racist or more or less racist uh, um, people uh, defecting from the Democrats. Nixon actually appears to be, you know, the the choice of those who want a, a placid future. The Democrats really had run out uh, had, had run out of time, and it took them, you know, as we know, it took them decades to reconstitute themselves as something that might look like a ruling party. And the the astounding thing is just three or four years before, when Johnson took office, the Democrats passed two pieces of landmark legislation that still uh, remain high watermarks for us today. The Voting Rights Act, we wish we had it back, and Medicare. Now we want Medicare for all. And just the, from those two things in 65 and 66 to the complete collapse of the party in 68 just shows how— how astounding 1968 was and how fast things can turn around in America. Well, this tragedy, the tragedy was that Johnson um, sacrificed the so-called Great Society in behalf of this lunatic war. Yeah. Uh, and in the process, he, uh, if there was any possibility of a kind of soft landing out of the, um, the turmoil of the Democratic Party into a sort of post-New Deal, you know, uh, stability or equilibrium. That that possibility was foregone. The the, the war destroyed the the, the great society. It uh, ushered in the reaction, the counter-revolution, if you will, that uh, actually prevailed for most of the period uh, of the last fifty years. We've only got a couple minutes left here. I want to bring this down to today. So today, the anti-war veterans of 1968 are feeling, you know, embattled and and anxious and and, and depressed. And Donald Trump is president. Uh, I hate to say it, but are Donald Trump and the people like him the winners of the last 50-year battle? They are the inheritors um, at the moment. Uh, which doesn't mean forever, but they indeed had read the they read the demographics, they read the rage, they read the resentment. They became the party of resentment that could mobilize the white majority into a, rest, a, a restorationist uh, onslaught. And um, yeah, at this point. Uh, we're sort of somewhere, we're in the Civil War, and it's something like 1863. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's iffy. Um, I think the, the the immediate outlook is pretty good, but uh, no one should underestimate the, the rancor, the, the viciousness, um, and the miscalculation that under, under, undergirds the the Republican reaction. This is the Republican Party that Richard Nixon aimed to, to create, that Ronald Reagan did create, uh, and Donald Trump, for all his bizarre uh, wackiness, uh, is actually, you know, the the feverish child of that misbegotten uh, counter-revolution. Todd Gitlin. He wrote the book, The 60s, Years of Hope, Days of Rage, and he's featured in the new issue of The Nation magazine commemorating the 50th anniversary of 1968, an interview with Todd Gitlin conducted by Sasha Abramsky. It's great reading. Todd, thanks so much. Great to have you on the show. 
Always a pleasure, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, John Nichols on the news media today. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, Alan Minsky will report on today's L.A. events with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But first, the news media in the age of Trump. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. His most recent book is Horsemen of the Trump Apocalypse. John, welcome back. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you, brother. Well, several of my friends say we are now in a new golden age of journalism because there is so much to uncover and report about Donald Trump and, and the other horsemen of the Trump apocalypse, as you call them. And uh, because the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other places, including the nation, have many talented and accomplished people writing great stuff about crimes in high places, we're in a new golden age of journalism. And yet, you have just published a piece at thenation.com headlined, These Are the Worst of Times for American Journalism. Uh, Why do you think that? Well, suggesting that this is a golden age for for journalism would be like, you know, standing standing in a torrential rainstorm, saying it's you know, like, wow, we finally got some, we got a little bit of water here. You know, it's it's <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, yeah, there is a there's a lot to report on. There's there's a million things to to do, um, but we don't have enough people to do it, and we're not paying enough people to do it. In fact, uh, by any measure, any reasonable measure, uh, we, are, we are without uh, the adequate core of journalists that's needed to, to cover our international, national, state, and local public affairs. And as such, uh, we're not getting anywhere near the flow of information we need as citizens to govern ourselves. In fact, we are in the midst of a radical period of calling out newsrooms, laying people off, shutting down publications. And this isn't just in, you know, sort of what's referred to as legacy media or traditional media, newspapers, radio stations, television stations. This is online as well. I mean, the studies from, from all the major centers that look at, at where things stand right now will tell you that while there are deep cuts going on in, in newspaper newsrooms, there have also been deep cuts going on in online newsrooms. So this is no golden age. It's a, it's a fantasy. And, and frankly, um, I'm really upset with the journalists who continue to perpetuate that fantasy uh, because while I do understand in the face of Donald Trump a desire to, to be strong and to, to stand up with everything you've got. We have to acknowledge that the corporations, the hedge fund managers, the billionaires 
that own so much of our media are kicking it, are kicking journalism to the curb. They are they are diminishing journalism. They are not advancing it. Well, the the immediate uh, example that that sort of exemplifies everything you're talking about is the New York Daily News uh, was the <clears throat> occasion of the piece that that you wrote. Uh, you know, our show's on the air, first of all, in Los Angeles. I think a lot of people don't know what the Daily News uh, is. Tell us about the Daily News, what its significance has been, and what's happened there in the last few days. Sure. Uh, the New York Daily News uh, is a century-old paper that, uh, at one time, mid-century, in the 20th century, was the largest circulation newspaper in the United States of America, not just in New York City, but the largest circulation in the country. Uh, it is a, historically an incredibly vibrant, incredibly important newspaper. Now, it doesn't always have the national reach of a New York Times or a Washington Post. It was historically the paper of New York City, particularly the paper of working-class people who lived in the boroughs of that city. Uh, until re- relatively recently, it continued to be the paper that won Pulitzer Prizes uh, because it broke stories that, that a lot of other media didn't pay attention to, stories of corruption, stories of struggle, stories of wealth and poverty. It's notable that in our media, uh, you, you, we're just going to talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's now covered a great deal by our media. But when she was running her campaign for Congress, if you looked in New York newspapers for serious coverage of her, you found a lot more in the Daily News on Mm. on many given days than you did in the rest of the media. And this newspaper just gutted its newsroom. Tronk, the corporation, you know, this investment firm, basically, that owns... Uh, the Daily News and a number of other papers around the U.S., uh, uh, including Chicago Tribune, in fact, had control for quite a while of the L.A. Times. Yeah. Uh, Trump just gutted out its newsroom. Uh, you're talking about the loss of, of, it looks like, I mean, the numbers are still, you, know, you, can, you can debate where it's at, but roughly half of the people there. Mm. And you understand, this newsroom had already been gutted, right? Yeah. It, in the piece I wrote, I wrote, I used numbers from the past that showed, you know, how many hundreds of reporters they have. Now you measure it in the small dozens. Uh, they can't cover New York with that. Uh, well, they can't cover the national politics where they historically were a very major player. And the thing is, the New York Daily News is in New York. Yeah, it is in the media center. It's a place we talk about across this country. I can give you the same story in city after city, county after county. They're gutting out the newsrooms. They are laying people off. They are shutting publications down. They are turning the lights out. And as they do so, they are doing every bit as much damage to journalism as Donald Trump does with his rants. Let me just say a few words about Tronk, the corporation that uh, owns the Daily News and lots of other uh, newspapers. Uh, Trunk used to be, started out as the Tribune Company, after the legendary Chicago newspaper, the Chicago Tribune. They changed their name to Tronk. Tronk is T-R-O-N-C. It's an acronym that means Tribune Online Content. You will note that that name says nothing about news or reporting or journalism. 
everything is just content and people like you and me are just content providers. It's a completely different con- conception of, of what, uh, what the news, what media are. Well, it's also the stupidest name in history. Yes, there's right? that I mean, too. It, it's just, it's an absurd, dumb name, which <laughs> I understand they're thinking about changing, and I, I give them credit for that. But, you see, this is, this is what happens when you have people who are interested in branding and marketing yeah. and making money, nothing but making money, taking over newsrooms. And remember, this is not about old media versus new media. The fact of the matter is that the investor class, the corporate class, the hedge fund managers, the billionaires who take over publications, by and large, do so to try and make money off them. But they don't want to make money the way that owners of publications, frankly, owners of newspapers, TV stations, and and even some of the initial online projects expect to do so, which is that you make a little bit of money because you understand what you're doing as a public trust. Maybe even you make a lot of money if it gets big, but you don't diminish journalism down to a level where you put the name of a city, you put the name of a state on your publication, but you cannot possibly cover that city or that state because you do not invest enough money in it to do the job. And remember, we are talking about profitable corporations. Yeah. You're talking about groups that make money, but because they're not making enough money, they kick journalism to the curb. Yeah, yes. Uh, we're speaking with John Nichols about uh, mass media, the news media in the age of Trump. Uh, you know, there's this new, recent phenomenon of the saviors, uh, billionaires coming to save, to rescue some of the big papers. The Washington Post now is owned by Jeff Bezos, one of the you know top five billionaires of the world. The L.A. Times has just been bought by a local billionaire named Patrick Soon-Shong, kind of a mystery man as far as journalism is concerned. He's never had anything to do with newspapers or journalism. And, you know, we're hoping, we're hoping for the best. He's got to be better than, than Tronk was. Uh, what do you think of, of uh, the turn towards uh, uh, billionaire saviors who we hope are liberals? <laughs> Look, I'd, I'd settle for moderates okay. uh, um, or, or just reasonable people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is, I think even a reasonable conservative uh, could still run a newspaper that, that, you know, if you had any sense of duty, any sense of responsibility, could cover a community. It's not about ideology. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that there are two problems here. Number one, there aren't enough billionaires. Okay? <laughs> and I've never, ever said that before, and I will never say it again. You heard but it here, folks. In this case, there are, there are not enough billionaires to save all the publications in America and all the online newsrooms and all the broadcast outlets and make them what they should be. Uh, most billionaires don't even care. So you have some people with a little bit of ego, like a Bezos, and, and, you know, look, they may do a decent job for a time, but what if they lose interest? And then here's the, the bottom line. Even if there were enough billionaires, uh, two big problems. Number one, you fall into the terrible trap that people fell into in Great Britain with the monarchy, right? Where you'd say, well, you know, maybe we'll have a good king, right? <laughs> 
you know, but that's why you end up with a good king, you know, Bill and a bad king, Steve, right? Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, waiting for a good king to come along is dysfunctional. And it, it's foolish, and, and it leaves you disempowered. You, ought, you oughtn't have a king. We, we fought a revolution <laughs> around now, that issue. Now that you mention it. Secondly, yeah, yeah you know, just on principle, then they wrote freedom of the press protections into the, into the Bill of Rights. But, but also the second thing is, I mean, I don't know about you, John. You, you can you know, you say your piece here. But it's my view that the billionaire class may have some interests of its own. Yeah, which, which I think might not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it might not be parallel to that of everybody else. Yeah, good point. I want to emphasize here one of your big points. I just want to underline one of your big points. We're concerned about the 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 terrible cuts in newsrooms, not just in coverage of the crimes of Donald Trump, but the crimes of the state legislatures, the lobbyists for the city council, the lobbyists for the zoning board. All of that really matters in cities and counties and states. And uh, newspapers used to, used to a lot of good newspapers used to try to cover that stuff. Now it's almost impossible. Well, yeah, we have state houses. I go around the country, state houses across this country. People, you know, all, they all talk about, oh, we used to have this many reporters here. There used to be a dozen people here, 20 people. You know, now we've got, you know, and I can knock a golf ball around the room because it's, it's empty or pretty close to empty. And this is the same with City Hall. Beats across this country, basic coverage of our uh, cities, our counties, uh, our school boards is diminished at a dramatic level. And this is not something that was unpredictable, by the way. Um, ben Dickin wrote... 20 years ago, in yeah. the last editions of this yeah. book, The Media Monopoly, he said, you know, as you go to a digital future, and we are, this is where we're at, um, and, you know, people are going to think everything is free, and that's understandable. Um, and But also, you're just going to have all these transitions, advertising moving away from the traditional publications, so the ability to make huge amounts of money without even trying, almost, um, would be diminished that you're going to see a radical diminution of local coverage. As you see a radical diminution of local coverage, you will rapidly see a change of your local, state, and national politics, because as people get less information from journalism, they end up getting more and more information from spin, from TV ads, from, you know, like people like Trump who just know how to use social media and things like that very, very well. And you end up creating a gap that power, particularly economic power, is especially well positioned to exploit. And so we have a crisis right now. We have a crisis where too much of our information is coming from self-interested elites and too little from folks who, as bad as they've been over the years, and remember, I'm a media critic. I've been a critic for a very long time of our, yes. of our media system. As bad as it is, at least tried, right? And yeah. at least felt some sense of duty, some sense of responsibility, and, and frankly, some sense of possibility. And, you know, these people are still out there, John. There are people working their fingers to the bone trying to, to cover it, but you can't do the job when you're understaffed. And so we have to, as a society start to think about dramatic new approaches to how we fund journalism. We can't just wait for a billionaire to show up. And, and we have to start doing what countries around the world do. You know, it's funny. When we talk about countries around the world, uh, most progressives are very, very comfortable with the idea 
that a single-payer Medicare for all healthcare system is the way to deal with healthcare. Uh, that tuition-free college is a great way to deal with education, higher education. Well, one lesson that we can take from countries around the world is everybody else massively subsidizes public broadcasting and community broadcasting. And uh, in countries around the world, there is strong support uh, via uh, you know all sorts of tax structures and things to make sure that it is easy for a lot of media to exist. Now, that doesn't mean that all the pathologies and problems that the United States is experiencing aren't being seen in other countries. There's no question. Other countries are struggling with these issues as well. But the degeneration of journalism that we have seen in the United States because of the cuts really is dramatic, and it does stand out from countries like Germany or from the Scandinavian countries with which we should want to compare ourselves. Our time is up. That's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guests, Todd Gitlin and John Nichols. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. Coming up at four tonight, this is happening. Jerry Quickly on the Doctrine of Discovery. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>